Welcome to The Final Word, a Bible teaching ministry with pastor, teacher, and author Jim Andrews. The Final Word is grounded on the invincible conviction that what the Bible teaches, God teaches. And that is the last word. On this program, truth still matters. The Bible is in, Babel is out. The Final Word is funded by listeners like you. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about the program, please go to our website at thefinalwordradio.com. There you'll find archives so you can listen to any program you may have missed. Visit us on our social media platforms at The Final Word Radio and write us a note. We love hearing from our listeners. We'll provide other contact information at the end of the program, so have your pen ready. And now Jim Andrews continues his current study of God's Word. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us again on The Final Word. Before I launch today's exposition, I want to make our listening audience aware of some articles that I have written. If you will go to jimandrewsbooks.com, that's one word, jimandrewsbooks.com, you will discover there are some articles that I've produced over the years that you may find interesting and helpful. I'm just happy to share them with you for whatever benefit they may have. We continue our exposition of the Epistle to the Hebrews. We're in that very famous and controversial passage, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now, let me again review the context. Unfortunately, in the last program, as we were approaching the end, we were going a little fast. We have to achieve some more clarity here, so we'll back up a little bit. The author said, therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about Christ... Let's press on to maturity, not laying again the foundations of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. That's good as far as it goes, but we want to move on and talk about deeper things. We don't want to talk anymore about instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection from the dead and of eternal judgment. Although that is true and right, but it's not very far in front of traditional Judaism. And this is what we're going to do if God permits. And then in verse 4, we have a major warning passage, a warning against apostasy. He says, For in the case of those who have been once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. He's talking about apostasy, a fatal turning away from God. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. That's very serious business that he's talking about. As I said in the last program, the passage that we are looking at here has been one of the most debated in the New Testament. There is the Arminian point of view. The Arminian point of view has no discomfort with the idea that one can lose one's salvation. And they look at that passage and they say, right there it is. Well, if you took it in isolation, one can easily see how those brethren might arrive at their position. However, as I emphasized in the last study, we must always interpret the Scriptures in context, and in context means the total biblical context, because the Bible ultimately has one author. That author, the Holy Spirit, speaks with one voice. He does not contradict himself. And since, following our logic, the New Testament is bountifully and emphatically clear, Elsewhere, that all those in Christ are eternally secure in Christ. And since it teaches, we think bountifully and emphatically, the perseverance of the saints, namely that every genuine child of God continues in the faith until the end, 
I believe you can set aside the Arminian point of view. Another problem with the Arminian point of view is that it not only believes you can lose your salvation, you can regain it, and the process goes on ad nauseum, hypothetically. Well, you can see here this doesn't fit into that paradigm because, verse 6, when one makes that fatal step, that is it. There's no on-again, off-again salvation. Well, there are others who want to find a way around the Arminian point of view, and they come in and say, this is just a hypothetical thing, this language here. When it says, in the case of those who've been once enlightened, they've tasted of the heavenly gift, been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, they've tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them unto repentance. The problem is, when you make it hypothetical, it loses all of its force. I gave you the illustration. Should someone say, after all the driving training you've had and all the bloody documentaries that you have seen to warn you against drunk driving, and you still throw all of that behind you and go out and drive looped, you will eventually get killed or seriously injured. Except that won't happen to anyone who's been to driving school and seen all that bloody stuff about wrecks when people drive. It's the same analogy. That force-fit interpretation is designed simply to evade the Arminian position, and it doesn't hold up, I think. So I want us to back up and do what we were doing toward the end of the last program. I want us to consider the descriptors of those who might possibly apostatize. Describes them as once enlightened. It describes them as those who've tasted of the heavenly gift. Describes them as partakers of the Holy Spirit, people who've tasted of the good word of God and of the powers to the age to come. Now, I was stressing as our time was winding down that all of these are metaphors or figures of speech. I emphasize that because at this early time, these apostolic days, you didn't have theological language hardened up and squared at the corners. So things did not always mean the same to all people. These are metaphors. And I suspect the expressions here are not intended to indicate entirely discrete experiences. I think they overlap considerably, so that each serves in some way to indicate what's meant by the others. I think this is especially important when we get to the clause made partakers of the Holy Spirit. That's an experience more clearly defined by other experiential descriptors surrounding it. Now, I was saying that my view, incidentally, is very much in accord with that of F.F. F. Bruce, the famed British biblical scholar, now dead. But I arrived at my position independently rather than borrowed it. I don't say that in any boastful way, but just to say both of us and others, too, have come at this thing independently and seen it the same way. Bruce points out that this expression, where enlightened, was used among Christians in Rome in the second century to designate baptism. Well, we don't have to hang our hats on that association. The expression, where enlightened, needs to be nothing more than people who at some point had seen the light intellectually and acknowledged the truth of the gospel and were baptized as Christians. Then the expression, tasted of the heavenly gift. Though Bruce thinks this may refer to participation in the Lord's table or the Eucharist, this too, tasted of the heavenly gift, doesn't need to mean anything more than people who have been so close to the blessings of Christ that were in the cup that they spilled over into the saucer, the people being the saucer. And the expression that they have become partakers of the Holy Spirit understood as a figure of speech 
we do not have to understand this expression technically as one and the same thing as partnership in the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Taken by itself, it could mean that, of course. But we don't have to take it by itself. We have to take it in the total biblical context. And we know that we have to come up with an allowable interpretation that does not mean the believers lose their salvation. And so what could that be? It doesn't need to mean anything more than this. Having been intimately exposed to and having benefited from the operations and gifts and manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Well, that was the case with Judas and Iscariot. Let me say it again, because I think that's the critical phraseology. Having become a partaker of the Holy Spirit. Somebody says, oh, that has to be a believer. No, it doesn't. All it has to mean is someone who's been intimately exposed to and had benefited from the operations, the gifts, and the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Judas Iscariot was certainly one. As a member of the Twelve, Judas was with the Lord constantly. And as a member of the Twelve, as the next phraseology puts it, Judas had tasted of the good word of God, and certainly he had tasted and seen and experienced the powers of the age to come, as few were privileged to. Yet, in the end, this most notorious apostate rejected and betrayed our Lord Jesus Christ into the hands of his enemies. And not only that, but during his earthly ministry, you'll recall that our Lord sent him out with his disciples, two by two. You'll recall that he commissioned them to proclaim the advent of the kingdom of God. And in that same mission, he had them in his name to heal the sick with the attending power of the Holy Spirit. There you are, having become partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. The point I'm making no, you don't have to be a genuine believer for those things to be true. There were many in the church who ultimately did not prove to be the real deal, but they were intimate enough with the church and with the mighty works of God that these things could be said of them. When someone has seen the light clearly, has tasted the heavenly gift so fully, has become in a real sense a partaker of the Holy Spirit in terms of hearing the good word of God, clearly and intimately and experienced the mighty works of God firsthand. Well, our writer to the Hebrews says, there's no turning back from that without fatal consequences. That is apostasy. Such a person in the Old Testament was Balaam. He was a banal and renegade prophet in the Old Testament. God actually spoke through him, you recall. Also in that camp was the whole Exodus generation, over 20 years of age who after they had seen so much of the glory of God in Egypt and in the wilderness, who were offered so many promises and heard and tasted the good word of God through Moses, yet they refused to believe God, and they were laid low in the wilderness as divine rejects. Bruce cites, and it's a good illustration, I think Simon Magnus, as a notorious example of the type here in view. Simon heard the gospel, he was so impressed by the powers of the age to come, which put his in the shadow, that he was baptized and for a time attached himself to the evangelist whose preaching had convinced him and who presumably had received a token of the Spirit when apostolic hands were laid upon him. Despite this, Simon Magnus was pronounced by Peter to be still, quote, in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Acts 8, 9 and following, and verse 18 and following. 
Simon Magnus showed himself in the following decades to be the most determined opponent of apostolic Christianity. If we ask in what sense a man like that could have partaken of the Holy Spirit, the words that follow here may point the way to the answer, says F.F. F. Bruce. The plain fact is that those who've once owned Christ, who have experienced in an intimate way the light of the truth, who have shared in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, I mean, they've seen changed lives, they've seen healings, they've seen clear answers to prayer, they've seen it all up very close and personal, they have tasted and once rejoiced in the good word of God and so forth. Well, when people like that turn their backs on all of that exposure, well, it's like one staring straight into the light of the sun. They go blind thereafter and are so hardened, so callous like Pharaoh of old, that they are forever beyond the self-imposed limits of God's mercy. For folks of that kind, it's impossible, therefore, to reach them or to renew them again to repentance. They don't suddenly get lost, and then later some of them get saved again. No, no, no. These people are gone. They are irretrievably doomed. They cannot be renewed to repentance. They won't repent because they can't. The horror of and the basis of judgment upon such apostasies is expressed in verse 6. It's fatal, this apostasy, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. In short, those who reject Christ, having once owned him, having once experienced so much light, the fullness of the cup overflowing into the saucer, they've experienced so much of his presence and power, they are at last irretrievable to the faith because they have, in effect, sinned against the Holy Spirit. They've sinned against clear light. They prefer darkness and align themselves with it. In doing so, they have, to all intents and purposes, repeated the sin of the enemies of Jesus. Those enemies crucified him on the cross. They humiliated the Son of God. Spiritually and functionally, this writer says, that is the gravity of such a step in the eyes of God. Though the author does not say it, his message is clear. Folks, this would be utter calamity to your soul. I beg you, don't go there. Don't back away from Christ and be ruined forever. Now, before we move on, let me address a practical question related to this passage. Occasionally, we will hear some believer giving a testimony of their journey of faith with Christ. They will describe an interlude, especially if they ostensibly came to Christ at an early age, where, in their words, they walked away from Christ for a time, lived in sin, but later the Lord got hold of them again and turned them back into the right path. How does that kind of experience relate to this in Hebrews chapter 6? Obviously, it's not the same. You say, how's that? Well, they would not have and could not have returned to Christ. Chapter 6, verse 6 is perfectly clear about that. Secondly, we must always use the Scriptures as our benchmark and guide in forming our theology, not our experience. You can misinterpret the Scriptures, you can misinterpret experience, but you're more likely to misinterpret your experience than misinterpret the Scriptures, so let the Scriptures trump experience. Now, rightly understood, the Scriptures will be correct. But individual appraisals of even our own experience are subject to misanalysis and misinterpretation. Thirdly, to hitchhike on the last point, I believe a great many people who describe their Christian experience in those terms 
If the truth were known, did not actually come to know Christ when they first professed him. In reality, I believe, they came to know him at a later time when they said, At last the Lord got hold of me. The original profession oftentimes was shallow, rootless, and temporary. But in the providence of God, it served as a threshold to later draw them really and truly into Christ, where the fruits of faith at last were truly evident. Fourthly, in some instances, an individual might actually come to know Christ at one juncture, then for a period of time jump track into worldliness, and were mercifully renewed to repentance. This is not the norm, but there are spiritual as well as physical diseases that can account for such defections from righteousness. But even if that is not the same as this in Hebrews 6, for that type of temporary backsliding into sin, it's not on the same level as what we see here in Hebrews chapter 6. What is in view in this passage is rejection, positive, straight-up rejection of Christ, in the face of clear light, in the face of manifest works of God, in the face of experience of abundant benefits that come with exposure to God's presence and power right up close and personal. In the other case, where one has temporarily departed from the paths of righteousness, one typically takes leave of the path of faith at a very immature and inexperienced stage of the Christian life. Now, to return from that practical question to our exposition of the text. The writer now resorts to an agrarian analogy to put things in perspective in verses 7 and 8. For the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls upon it, and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, the ground receives a blessing from God. But if it, the ground, yields thorns and thistles, then the ground is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. By analogy, the author says there are two types of spiritual soil. One type joyfully absorbs the blessed water, which is like the word of God, which falls from heaven and returns fruit to sustain the farmer who tilled it. This type enjoys God's blessing. But there is another type of ground, an unproductive kind. The water falls on it. Remember Isaiah 55? The water of the word. It yields nothing good or useful, just thorns and thistles. Well, such ground is considered worthless. It's virtually cursed. And as one would naturally expect, such ground is eventually burned. So to have received much from God in the way of spiritual tillage and water, and yet turn around and reject Christ as they would do, were any of them to turn their backs on him, that would be the functional equivalent of ground bringing forth thorns and thistles. That would be to make oneself a reject, one who does not pass the test in God's eyes, to bring upon oneself a curse, and to be destined to be consumed in judgment. As sobering and threatening as that prospect is, our author now hastens to reassure his readers that in fact he does not see them in that picture, as compelled as he was by the Spirit to warn them, and God uses his warnings that way. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we're speaking to you in this way. That's the way the word works. Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That balance. Now, his better opinion of who they really are and where they are spiritually raises another practical question. 
If the author doesn't really believe these people are on the verge of giving up their faith, then why does he bring out the heavy guns and lay such a dreadful warning upon them? Now, the answer to that question is very, very instructive about the way God uses his word. It's very, very instructive about how we preachers must get in alignment with the Spirit's purposes. Let me explain first a little context. The New Testament teaches us that God keeps all that he calls to Christ. John 6, 37 and 39. John 10, 27 through 29. 1 Corinthians 8, Jude 1, 24. He's not only able to keep, he's bound to, for he says he will. Now, one of the ways that the Spirit keeps us believers in tow, one of the ways that the Spirit keeps us from falling is by the instrumentality of his word. In the high priestly prayer of John 17:17, 17, 17, Jesus prayed, Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. You see, the Holy Spirit uses the exhortations, the encouragements, as well as the warnings and the threatenings of his word to cause us to will and to do of his good pleasure. That's the language of Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Perhaps you've heard me say, the word of God causes what it commands. It produces what it prescribes. God's word is not a dead word on a page, but it's a living, active, creative energy of God himself. So where the Spirit is working, a warning or threatening passage like this has its healthful effect on the honest-to-goodness believer. It accomplishes what it argues for. That is why we preachers must never sit in judgment on the word and arrogate to ourselves the right to omit, for the sake of people's delicate contemporary sensitivities, the warnings and the threatenings of the Word of God. Where the shoe fits, the preacher must see that people try it on. If the Word meets a heart where the Spirit is working, the Word will have its beneficial effect. It will accomplish exactly what God sent it forth to do, if not immediately, then later. But we have the assurance of the Spirit of God that His Word will not return to Him void of its purpose. Isaiah 55. Folks, the ministry of the Word of God is a key player in God's keeping equation. That is why, friends and pastors, I might add, we are obliged to declare the whole counsel of God. We're obliged to declare that which makes people sometimes uncomfortable, which makes them wiggle in their seats under the influence of the Spirit's conviction. I don't enjoy doing that, but we shouldn't be afraid to do that, because we're not here to please people. We're here to please God. Our mandate is never to make people happy, not to try to make them unhappy, but it's certainly not to make them happy. It's not to see that they have a positive, uplifting, heartwarming, feel-good Sunday morning experience. But it's to see that they have a true and healthful encounter with the Word of God. And for all who are rightly aligned with Christ, that's their earnest desire when they come to church. So our writer balances sober warning with strong encouragement. So should we. The Spirit of God is invested in both, and He uses both to salutary effect. We can always believe that. Time and again, as I read the Word of God, I can tell you, both the positive and the negative have a wholesome effect on me. They sober me when I get careless. They summon me to get my act together or suffer the consequences. Or, at other times, the Word of God encourages and inspires me when I'm too hard on myself and fail to appreciate enough the grace and mercy of our loving God. 
So we need both. We need the warnings and we need the encouragement to keep our spiritual boat on even keel. Well, thank you, dear friends, for joining us on The Final Word. God bless you and have a wonderful day. The Final Word is a listener-supported ministry. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about this program, please visit our website at thefinalwordradio.com. Our postal address is The Final Word, 4565 Carmen Drive, Lake Oswego, Oregon, 97035. Our email address is info at thefinalwordradio.com. Our phone number is 503-699-9840. If this program has ministered to you, tell a friend about it. We do solicit your prayers for God's hand upon this outreach. Be sure the word. Be sure the word. Just be sure the word gets in the hand.